Hey, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. And today, we're going to explore why having an eternal perspective is so crucial to one's faith. Well, welcome back, guys. My name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church in beautiful Powell River, British Columbia. And we're so glad that you've joined us online today. Now, today's going to be a little bit of a different uh, kind of take on what we've already talked about. So if you were at our Good Friday service or if you watched our Good Friday service online, you will know that we dealt with the subject matter of Jesus before this man named Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And so today we find ourselves in our series in the Gospel of John, we find ourselves in the exact same place. And so as I was kind of looking at this passage and we were looking through, we thought, you know what, we need to kind of approach this from maybe a bit of a different angle. And so we uh, took on that challenge and I hope that you enjoy this time together this morning. But if you do have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 18, we're going to be starting verses 28, and we're going to actually go right into chapter 19 as well. Uh, we're not going to read the entire thing for you right now. Uh, if you were at our uh, in-person service, we would have, but here online, uh, I just encourage you uh, from uh, John 18, 28 to 19, 16, that is going to be what we're dealing with today. So if you want to take time to just read that on your own in its entirety, that would be a great kind of uh, process for you. But we're going to kind of be jumping through this a little bit. So before we do that, let's just, let's just open a prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you, uh, you speak to us by your spirit and that your word is there to encourage, to edify, to build up, to convict, convince and so, Lord, we pray that you would do all of those things in our hearts and in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to start in verse 28 here. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, here we kind of come to the first of our three ironies that we're going to be exploring today. These kind of ironic moments within these passages. You know, the Jewish authorities find themselves at the house of a Gentile. And so they are about to walk into the season of Passover, into the Passover meal the next day. And so in order to partake of that meal, they have to remain ceremoniously clean. Now, to interact with a Gentile or to go into the home would have caused them to become unclean. And there's a bunch of steps they would have to take ceremoniously to become clean again in order to be a part of that. Um, what's super interesting about this, I mean, there's a number of reasons why they might become unclean. Uh, the fact that this was a Gentile's home. Uh, the other part was they had to kind of rid their homes of all the leaven within their homes. And so they're very um, focused on ridding all the leaven out of their homes. So they couldn't kind of take the chance that they'd walk into a Gentile's home that hadn't 
done that process of getting rid of the leaven and perhaps coming in contact with leaven, which in, uh, in this way kind of represented sin. And so they, uh, in order to remain ceremoniously clean and to partake in the Passover the next day, they did not want to go into Pilate's home. Now, now to fully kind of understand the irony of this moment, we need to understand what the Passover represents. The Passover originated while Israel was still in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt. And the last plague that entered the land by the hand of God was the angel of death, the one that passed over the land and um, every firstborn male was put to death. However, God gave instructions to Moses and, and produced a way of escape from this judgment of the Passover of the angel of death uh, at that time. And we find that in Exodus 12, 21 to 24. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for you yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. Friends, the irony here is found in who Jesus is. It's found in what the Passover pointed to. It's not just an event that happened in the past. It's actually a promise for the future. And have you ever wondered why Jesus is, is often referred to kind of metaphorically as the Lamb, as the Lamb of God? And this is why. He is the sacrificial Lamb, the perfect, unblemished Lamb. And, and here we have this kind of strange moment where these religious leaders are seeking to kill the Lamb of God while at the same time mindful and worried about remaining ceremoniously clean for the Passover meal. And there's this kind of, there's this hate that is growing in these men that has blinded them to the, to the incongruency of this moment. So what, what is the lesson in here for us? In this ironic moment we find in this passage, if, if you're taking notes, write this down. Hate has a way of presenting as religious. Hate has a way of presenting as religious. You know, we've all seen it. You know, fringe parts of, now when I say church, I'm using this in the loosest sense of the word, but fringe parts of those that would call themselves Christ followers or Christians or the Christian church that kind of get highlighted in the media. And, and they're essentially, they're essentially hate groups wrapping their hate in religious rhetoric. You know what I'm talking about? We see it all the time. And, and we ask ourselves, how do they not see the inconsistency and the incongruency of their beliefs in this moment? But here's the thing. When we let hate infiltrate and motivate, we become blind to the inconsistency of it, the insanity of it. We become blind to it. 
And this moment in John, it demands something of us. It, it demands that we ask the question, do I carry a hate for generations, for political outlooks, for the ethnicities around me, for the social economic kind of positions around me? And the list goes on and on and on. We have to get real about the motivations of our hearts. And this moment in John, it actually speaks to the blindness that hate brings. As these, these Jewish leaders sought to, they didn't see Jesus. They didn't see him. They didn't see him, the revealed Messiah, the Lamb of God, the perfect one, the Holy One, the one that came to save, the one who came to establish a, a new kingdom in this world and beyond this world. They missed it. They didn't see it because hate had grown in their hearts towards Jesus. The moment we let our faith justify our hate, we are no longer walking in the way of Jesus. Can I just say, in a climate of polarization and disunity, we need to be extra sure that hate does not become the motivation of our hearts and our treatment of others. So let's jump into our second irony here. It's found in, in, verse 19, or in chapter 19, 1 to 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Now, this moment gives us a bit of a dark look at the kind of fraternity that was the Roman garrison culture. And there seems to be kind of a level of sadistic behavior that was prevalent among these men. And I want to quickly address this flogging that Pilate um, orders Jesus receive. Because it seems at face value that there's an inconsistency here between John's gospel and the other gospels. Because in the other gospels, it actually shows that um, it, it tells of Jesus being flogged after being sentenced by Pilate. But here in John, this is pre-sentencing. He's being flogged. So what's going on here? Well, D.A. Carson helps us understand this a little bit. He writes, flogging administered by the Romans could take one of three forms. The fustigatio, fustigatio, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying guys. A less severe beating meted out for relatively light offenses such as hooliganism and often accompanied by a severe warning. The flagellatio, flagellatio, a brutal flogging administered to criminals whose offenses were more serious. And the verberatio, the most terrible scourging of all. And one that was always associated with other punishments, including crucifixion. You know, the best understanding of what happened here and why we see these apparent, you know, inconsistencies among the gospel accounts is that... The easiest kind of way to kind of put this all together is that Jesus received prior to his sentencing in this moment recorded by John, the lesser of the floggings. And so Pilate sends him away for the lesser of the floggings. 
Um, and, and when the other gospels speak of Jesus receiving the flogging, they're actually speaking of him also on top of receiving that one prior to sentencing, also receiving the worst of the floggings prior to him going to his crucifixion. Um, if you were here on Good Friday, we had talked about Pilate and he's trying to find a way of escape. He doesn't want to uh, condemn and convict Jesus to this capital offense, to this capital punishment. And so he's trying to find a way. And so perhaps he sent Jesus away to this flogging, to the garrison for this treatment and bringing him back out before the people. He's hoping that it will satisfy kind of their bloodlust in this moment. But here we kind of get a second picture of irony. The soldiers are attempting a very brutal form of satire here. Uh, a, a crown of thorns upon Jesus' head. A purple robe, which is, which is a color that was associated to royalty. And, and little did they know that it wasn't satire at all. Though it was cruel, it was not satirical. Because they were not exposing Jesus as a fraud. Jesus actually was and is the king. Not just of the Jews, but of all created things. The king of kings. Friends, the mockery and cruel treatment of a truth does not diminish the truth. In this moment, they're seeking to diminish Jesus. Jesus was never once diminished. In all of these accounts, in all of this moment, in this season of him going to the cross, Jesus was not diminished. We see in time he becomes exalted again before all of humanity and all of creation. We live in a moment, friends, when truth Objective external truth given to us by God is standing trial, just as Jesus did in the public forum. You know, much of the language around the attacks on truth um, are, 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 are of mockery and anger and denial. But just as Jesus wore that crown of thorns, just as he wore that purple robe, um, in that moment of cruel irony, it, it, it does not diminish the fact that he was and is king. May we stand for the truth of our Savior, despite the cost of ridicule, mockery, abuse, loss of social capital, perhaps even loss of relationships, perhaps even persecution one day. In like a real sense, not in like our like kind of uh, uh, first world problem sense. Um, may we stand for truth. But let's do it in a way that does not allow room for hate and bitterness towards people in the world to creep in. Because it's not going to be long after this moment of abuse that Jesus is hanging on a cross and he's praying these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's amazing. Jesus didn't harbor resentment or bitterness towards the very people that were essentially killing him. 
this is what it looks like to walk out truth in love. Now, the third irony is one that is not quite as obvious, but it carries with it um, a certain amount of speculation. So, you know, our first irony dealt with Jesus as the lamb. The second dealt with Jesus as king. This one, this third irony is dealing with Jesus as judge. And we find this in John 19, 12 to 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The irony of this moment can be found either way. But it becomes even greater when you speculate on the word choices that John uses to describe this moment. So, so for that, we're going to need to understand the implications of, of the original Greek language here. William Barclay does a great job of unpacking this when he writes, Pilate came out to the place that was called the pavement of Gabbatha, which may mean the checkered pavement of marble mosaic, and sat upon the judgment seat. This was the bima on which the magistrate sat to give his official decisions. Now the verb for to sit is kathazine. And that may be either intransitive or transitive. It may mean either to sit down oneself or to seat another. Just possibly. It means here that Pilate with one last mocking gesture brought Jesus out clad in the terrible finery of the old purple robe and with his forehead encircled with the crown of thorns and the drops of blood the thorns had wakened and set him in the judgment seat and with a wave of his hand said, Am I to crucify your king? The apocryphal gospel of Peter says that in the mockery they set Jesus on the seat of judgment and said, Judge justly, king of Israel. The second century Christian writer, Justin Martyr, also says that they set Jesus on the judgment seat and said, give judgment for us. It may be that Pilate jestingly caricatured Jesus as judge. If that is so, what dramatic irony is there? Whether it was Pilate seated on the judgment seat, or Jesus seated as an act of mockery, the irony of this moment, it remains the same. Though Jesus came as Savior, as the Lamb, though he revealed himself as King, there will come a day when Jesus will return as the righteous judge. Again, this, this kind of attempt at satire is thwarted because Jesus is the righteous judge. There's this kind of... Um, there's, there's kind of like a holy fear that this picture should conjure in our minds as we kind of picture it and think of it. The writer of Proverbs says it best in Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One 
is insight. Friends, perhaps our, our pursuit of trying to make Jesus more and more palatable to our society, perhaps we've missed maybe this, this stark picture of Jesus as the righteous judge. Right? We, we speak of Jesus as friend, and, and he is. We, we speak of him as, as our Messiah, our Savior, you know, the, the God in flesh who made God more um, relatable to humanity. And, and, and he is, but he is also the awesome, holy, and righteous judge. And this is what gives power to this picture of Jesus potentially kind of seated on this Bema seat in the first century, beaten, bloodied, blood dripping down his face, his crown of thorns, uh, the purple robe being stained dark. And it stands in such contrast to how Jesus will be revealed in the end of the age. At his return, a righteous judge standing in perfect authority and power. To consider Jesus in this way is, is to consider the implications of our sin and our wrongdoing, of our lives in light of his perfect holiness. So the question is then, in all of this, how do we keep ourselves from walking in the same ironies in our own lives that we see with those interacting with Jesus in the first century? How, how do we walk this out? And I think the answer comes in Jesus' response to Pilate. It's a perspective we've talked about a lot in the last little while. This perspective, this eternal perspective that kind of keeps our eyes clear. In 1833, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What a profound exchange we have playing out right in front of us here. I want you to picture this scene. Uh, they went back into the headquarters. So they went back into uh, Pilate's uh, kingdom, into his castle, into his um, residence. And so it's just Pilate and Jesus here, one-on-one. -on -one. And they're having this dialogue. And, and Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers with the question, do you say this or are you just simply parroting what's been told to you? And Pilate's response to this is telling. He says, am I a Jew? Um, and, and the tone of this would have been um, with, a, with a level of disgust. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no uh, secret that Pilate historically was not a friend of the Jews. In, in fact, um, he harbored a disdain over this people that he ruled over. 
Now keep in mind that the Jewish authorities, they needed Pilate to convict Jesus because under Roman law, they could not convict Jesus to death on their own, within their own um, dealings. They needed Pilate to make this conviction. And so they brought this kind of rival king claim that Jesus was claiming to be a king that was going to kind of bring this insurrection. And this kind of brings us to where we, where we land today. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Friends, how do we keep ourselves from hate motivating our pursuits? How do we live in a culture that reviles truth without reviling it? How do, how do we live in light of a coming judgment? With an eternal perspective that sees clearly the kingdom to come and not putting our faith into earthly kingdoms. That's how. That's how. Jesus told Peter to put the sword away. Why? Because he was going to reveal himself as king of an eternal kingdom. Jesus held back his authority to call an angel army to subdue his enemies. Why? Because he was interested in subduing a greater enemy. Death, sin, the grave, Satan, and his demons. He spent his life on establishing a kingdom that transcended the local authority, the empire of Rome and the empires of the world. But he also invites us into that same pursuit. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, why so you are king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Friends, not, not everyone will listen. But those who are of the truth, in pursuit of truth, listen to his voice. As I was studying for this sermon, I found myself writing down a question. And it was a question just for me. I wasn't necessarily going to bring this up. Um, but the more and more I thought and, and kind of considered the more and more I felt like, you know what, this, this, the answers to this question for me were helpful. And so I hope maybe this will become a filter that will be helpful to you. But the question was this. How does one live a Christian faith in a politically charged landscape? I literally wrote that down on a piece of paper as I was studying this. And there's three things in Jesus' answer to Pilate that really stick out to me. And I think that they help serve as a filter and a framing for the way we see the world and pursue the world in this day and in this age. How does one live a life of Christian faith in a politically charged landscape? Number one, we don't give priority to the kingdoms of this world. We don't give priority to the kingdoms of this world. Jesus gave all his priority to the kingdom to come, to an eternal kingdom, an eternal perspective. Number two, we listen to Christ's voice. You want to know the truth? Listen to Christ's voice. And number three, we live in the world while looking beyond it. We live in this world while looking beyond it. 
adopting an eternal perspective. In these daily practices, we protect ourselves from walking in the same ironies that we find in scripture here. Truth will reign. Jesus is king. A judgment is coming. He's speaking today. Are you of those who hear his voice? Let's respond to it. Lord, we thank you that though we look at scripture and see the incongruency, the inconsistency of the human condition, that Lord, you still uh, went to that cross, endured that pain, endured that, the, the, the false accusations, the attempts that satire, <laughs> though you were king and, and you were judge and you were the lamb, Lord, we thank you that despite just the the way humanity treated you, Lord, you still served it with your life. And um, you extended salvation to us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as we look to serve you, to walk in faith, to be faithful to these things in our own lives, Lord, that you would cause us to be motivated always by love, that there be no room for hate, that, Lord, we would see you as our Savior and our Lamb, our perfect sacrifice. That, Lord, we would know you as our King, exalted, seated at the right hand of the Father. But, Lord, may we also be those that anticipate you coming as righteous judge. And may that, that holy fear cause us to live in such a way that we pursue your kingdom first. And we pray that your kingdom come. That, Lord, we be those that listen to your voice. Know your voice. And finally, we be those, Lord God, who live in this world while looking beyond it with anticipation for what you are establishing. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.